can I ask you, how many of you can remember like one gift that you received when you were a kid? Some of us, that takes quite a memory. But way back then, you can remember a gift that you received and it just so excited you. It totally surprised you. Anyone? Gifts that you totally surprised you. I remember a time, and it wasn't my gift. It was actually one of my older brother's gifts. And my dad had been working for weeks and weeks. We were not allowed down into the basement. You see, up in the north, they actually had those things called basements. And we, he'd been working in this thing called a basement for weeks and weeks. And we were just so curious. You know, even when we would try to sneak down there, like, my dad caught us. Michael, get up out of there. You can't go down in there and look. And so it was a total secret. Christmas morning, we go down there. And my dad directs us to, now picture this with me, if you will, a canning cabinet on the wall. It's about four or five inches deep. It's about four feet by four feet, has doors that swing wide like this, just like most cabinet doors. And he turns to my brother, Dan, and he says, Dan, this is your gift. Go ahead and open it. Now you can only imagine in our minds, oh dad, this is such a dorky gift. Really? (laughs) You hid it in the canning cabinet? There's shelves in there. You know, my mom would put jars in there. And he tried opening it, and he couldn't open it. And my dad said, oh, I forgot to tell you. You have to open it from the top, much like a a, a drawbridge would lower. And so my brother unlashed it at the top, lowered it down, and these chains caught it so it was parallel with the ground, a four-foot by four-foot racing car track. And we just, the younger brothers, we just stood back and said, oh, wow. And we just we just immediately started dreaming about racing these cars, and he got like the coolest cars ever. So we're we're of course we're saving up our money because we want to buy the next coolest car. But here's something that we really enjoy doing. Now, girls, this is probably like totally strange to you, but there's something in us guys that likes to do this. Okay, didn't we like to drive the car around the track so fast and see how fast we could get that car before it flew off the curve? Right. Okay, good. You just crank it. Okay, here's the, here's the stretch. Go around, but not too fast. But then we got a little bit tired of that, so we wanted to see how fast we could make that car go and how far it would fly off the track, right? But that bored us after a while, so we started building these obstacles in the track, right at the where right where we felt the peak performance of our car would be, the fastest it would go, and it would smash into this obstacle. And you 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 wanted to see would it still stay on the track or would it destroy my car? There's something inside of us guys that likes to destroy things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah there is. It, it, it is like totally foreign to you girls, isn't it? I mean. We like to blow things up. How many of you have ever blown something up in your childhood? Okay, a few ladies' hands here. Brian, both of your hands are up, I guess, right? And, and we love to blow things that we love to destroy. That's just a fact of life. There is a time to destroy. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us this. There actually is. There's a time to destroy and a time to build, it says. And for God, there it will be a time to destroy. At the end of the age, the universe will be destroyed and a new earth, a new universe will be created. There will come at the end of the age the destruction of evil. These are good destructions. But I want to focus on something a little different this morning. I want to focus on the negative aspect 
of destruction. Because we learn in John 10 that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So there is a bad type of destruction. You see, the good destruction is when evil's destroyed. The bad destruction is when Satan tries to destroy that which is good. Our problem is, as we look around our world today, this season, how much, like in Luke 2, turn there with me, how much glory to God in the highest and on earth peace do we actually see? There is an evil in our world that seeks to destroy the good. It's, it's in our world. It's in our homes at times. You know, church, it's even in us. I, w- I want to propose a truth to you this morning. And it's this. For there to be true peace anywhere, evil must first be destroyed. Good must triumph. I'm going to say that one more time. For there to be true peace, evil must be destroyed and good must triumph. So let me put it another way for us. For true peace to be present around us, there must first be war, a battle, a confrontation between that which is good and that which is evil. And the good must triumph. Today's sermon I'm entitling The Battle for Peace. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, I'm going to read that for us, and I'm going to ask a question. Do you see a battle? Verse 8, And there was shepherd, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, A great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, They spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So can I ask you, did you see the battle there as I read it? Did you see the confrontation of good versus evil? Did you see the battlefield and the armies arrayed? Did you see that? Yeah, you're looking at me like, Pastor Mike, did you just read a passage that you're... I didn't see that at all. So here's what I want us to do. Let's take a little closer look at this passage. 
and see if we can find it. In verse 11, it says, today, this is the angel, maybe it's Gabriel, we don't know, the angel of the Lord appears and says to the shepherds, this day in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign you'll find a baby wrapped in cloth, which, by the way, would be rather typical to find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, nothing unusual about that. But here's the unusual thing. He'll be lying in a what? A manger, a feeding trough. Very unusual. You don't find babies lying in feeding troughs like every day. And so that would be a sign as they're going through Bethlehem. But suddenly, as he concludes this announcement, there are angels that gather with him and say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And I want us to bring our attention to something here. And it's one word. And when we understand this word, because you probably don't see it right now. When we understand this one word, the picture starts getting a little bit bigger, a little bit clearer. When we start looking at some other passages, we'll then be able to see the battle here. But right now, it's like, Pastor Mike, what? And it's this word. It's the word host. Do you see it there in your Bible? Host. There was a host of angels. This word host reflects back into the Old Testament in which God himself, Yahweh, Jehovah, was called the Lord of hosts. Now that Hebrew word, Sebaoth, would be translated either like a large company, a large group, or an army in array. And you find it that way in the, in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the Septuagint, as it, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, when they're translating this word, Sebaot, sometimes they translate it and they actually, they did this, they, they transliterated it. In other words, they created a Greek word from the Hebrew letters and they just called them the Lord of Sabaoth. So, like that really doesn't help us out. But in other places, they translated it Lord of powers. And in other places, Lord all-powerful or almighty. Now, in our version, many of you, in, like in the NIV, they translate it Lord almighty. So how is it that Lord of hosts would be translated Lord almighty? And it's because generally this word hosts, referring to the angels of heaven, depicted God, Jehovah, as the supreme commander of an army. Now, if you were to look, and you don't have to do this, but in Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, there is an angel that stands and confronts, if you will, Joshua. He says, take your shoes, your sandals off, for this is holy ground. But Joshua asks who are you, assuming that he wasn't necessarily an angel, but he was one of the Canaanites with drawn sword ready to take Joshua down. And he's thinking, buddy, I'm standing my ground. And he asks him, who are you? And he says, I am the commander of the Lord's, of the Lord of, of the hosts of the Lord. Excuse me. He is the army commander of the Lord's army. Now, when we come to this passage, we ask ourselves, well, is he talking about just a large company or is he talking about an army? That's a fair question. And so when we look at this verse, 
we have to say that if we translate it company, now follow me here, if we translate it company or large group, it seems rather redundant, doesn't it? It would actually read, suddenly a great company of the heavenly company appeared with the angel. And I'm not sure that Luke would be so redundant. He's wanting us to tell something, tell us a little more than just the fact that there's a group of angels, but that this group of angels specifically is an army of angels. The Greek word stratia actually is translated army. And so we, we, we step back just a bit and we say, why, why is it significant for Luke to tell us that this group of angels that's joining this angel of the Lord to give glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. Why is it significant that this is an army? Look through here. Apart from this one word host, do you see anything that's indicative of a battle, a war, a battlefield, a sword, anything? Talk to me about bombs or airplanes, something, well, maybe not, but what, tell me what, why? And the truth is, apart from this word, there is nothing but peace. So, Pastor Mike, scratching your head on this, what's the big deal? I mean, apart from that word, I don't see anything. And it's because Luke, at least here, is purposely leaving something out. Matthew brings it to the forefront. But John, in Revelation 12, turn there with me, actually sees what Luke does not tell us is actually happening right now, right now. At this moment in which Jesus the Savior is born, something in the spirit realm is happening that we do not see. We do not read about in Luke 2. Luke purposely does this. It's much like as you're reading through Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness or Piercing the Darkness. Phenomenal books that really open our eyes to the realities of the spirit realm. Because as we look around here today, we don't see angels, though I guarantee you there are angels here in our midst. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about angels being present, present when, worship, when worshipers are gathered. There are angels here in this room. It wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if some had drawn swords. But there is a scene here, a spiritual scene, that with our with our human eyes, we do not see. But in Revelation 12, we do see this. And, and it is, it's actually a vision or a picture, if you will, that God shows to John, and we see it starting in verse 3. He talks about a woman who is obviously the nation of Israel. She was pregnant. Then in verse 3, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads who would be Satan himself. And ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Why the earth? Those stars would represent the demons, the fallen angels that would follow him. And now he and the demons have been are on earth. For what reason? It tells us. The dragon, it says stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child. The moment 
it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Can I ask you, who is this child? Absolutely. Jesus. Jesus. When Jesus was about to be born, Luke 2, what was happening? Satan and all his minions, or a number of them, gathered there that we do not see ready to devour Jesus the moment he is born. Does Jesus get devoured? Does he get destroyed? In any way, does he get harmed? Not even a hair on his head. If as a baby he even had one. Not at all. Luke tells us, the only thing that Luke shares, there's peace, there's glory to God. Doesn't tell us about swords being brandished and swung about and, and demons falling or whatever might happen in a spiritual battle. Nothing of that nature. But if we go to Matthew chapter 2, we do see something here. We don't know how long after Jesus was born. All we know that it was approximately two years after the star first appeared to the Magi. They could have been following the star for over a year. We don't know. But about two years after the star appeared, Herod gives the decree to go to Bethlehem and kill all babies under the age of two. After we learn of this decree, Joseph, in the middle of the night, is awakened by an angel. And he is told to get up at that very moment. Do not delay, Joseph. Gather your family and now head to Egypt. Wow, can you imagine the inconvenience of that? <laughs> it's not like he brought all his household goods with him, leaving Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. This was just going to be a short stay. And now it's going to be a prolonged stay for months to maybe up to two years. We don't know. God had provided, right? Gold, incense, frankincense, myrrh. God provided financially for them for this trip. And now in the middle of the night, he wakens his family, wakens the baby, and off they go. Immediate obedience. The soldiers come. They kill the children. But Jesus is spared. Luke doesn't tell us about this portion, of, this portion of the story. But I guarantee you, if we could have been there and we had spirit eyes to be able to see the spirit realm, the array of angels and demons, I assure you, we would see the battlefield. Luke's purpose is to talk to us about peace. But I'm going to suggest to you that if we want peace, if you want peace in your home, not just at the manger scene, but if you want peace in your home, there is going to be a battle that needs to proceed. Now, I'm not talking about a physical battle here. I'm not talking about a battle of words, but I'm talking about a spiritual battle because the, the, the goal of Satan is to destroy and not bring peace. And as Satan is unleashed in this world, his, he seeks destruction and disunity even in our own homes to destroy. 
If you want to see peace in your home, if you want to see peace around you, if you want to see peace in your workplace as you're praying, understand this, that the way to peace is confrontation between good and evil, between God and Satan. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood, is it? That boss that's mean to you, that that neighbor that constantly is ornery, that relative that constantly says things, they just know exactly where your buttons are. They just know exactly how they are. They're, they are experts in being rude. And you view them as the enemy. But the truth is, I'm, I'm not saying that they may, they may not be your enemy, but what lies behind all of this is a spirit realm that you cannot see. And Satan is pulling the strings like a puppet master. And he is controlling. We may not see the battle here in Luke 2. But this host or army of angels that is declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests, the only way to bring this peace is through war, is through battle, is through confrontation and conflict. Luke's folk, Luke chooses to focus on the peace that follows. Matthew does tell us some of this conflict. You know, not only at Jesus' birth was there this battle, this confrontation between good and evil, God and Satan, Jesus, even Jesus himself and Satan, but we also know that it happened at Jesus' inauguration of ministry. Right after he's baptized, he's in the wilderness for 40 days, and after that wilderness experience, he begins his ministry. What happens in that wilderness experience for 40 days? He is tempted by the devil. Three occasions are recorded for us in Luke 4 and in Matthew 4. And he confronts Satan and he stands his ground so firmly that it says, and Satan left him for a season. Wouldn't that be nice to have Satan leave your home, leave your life for a season? That would be awesome. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Yeah, you destroy this, this disunity, right? Another time in which we see this is at the cross and resurrection. And I, and I don't want to separate the cross from the rex resurrection. The cross speaks of death, the resurrection of life. At the cross, that's where we are forgiven. And I find myself identified with Christ dying to self. The old man is crucified. In his resurrection, I am brought up in newness of life. Not only are my sins forgiven, but they have to be forgiven for me to become a transformed person. For the old to truly be dead and the new to be brought to life. So I look at this as the cross and the resurrection together and it tells me in John chapter 12 Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says here in John 12 31 he says now is the time for judgment on this world he's referring to the time he's going to the cross now the prince of this world will be driven out but when I but I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. At the cross, it's clear Jesus is saying that judgment is going to come in this world. The verdict will be rendered guilty and Satan will be cast out. 
He was going to be defeated, at least in part, at the cross and resurrection. We learn also in Colossians 2.15, it says, And having disarmed the powers, the rulers, and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So by the cross, Jesus defeated the devil. Now we also learn at the end of the age, and I'm going to read a few verses to you in Revelation 19, that talks about the end of the age, in which it says, I saw heaven standing open, another vision that John has. And there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. It says in verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Skipping down to verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophets and the, the, who performed miraculous signs on his behalf. And they're cast, it says, into the lake of fire, the second death, which is hell. Satan finally triumphed over as he's working through the the false or the beast, the false prophet, and Satan is destroyed. And he himself, we find in the next chapter, is cast into hell. These are the confrontations. And with each confrontation, the goal is to bring peace, to bring life. And I'm going to suggest to you again that if we are going to find peace, we must have God step into our situation and there's going, to be conf- there's going to be conflict. There's going to be confrontation. As we go back to Luke 1, even though Luke 2, we did not see any battlefield, no skirmish, no battle of any kind, we see pictures of this in chapter 1. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is prophesying over his son, John. The first half of this prophecy, I'm not going to read, but only a few verses of it. The first half of this prophecy specifically refers to God himself come in the flesh, that is Jesus. The second part refers to John being a prophet and preparing the way for the Lord. And it says in the first half, it says in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through the holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You see the confrontation here. Jesus was purposely given to this earth in order for him to have battle and victory over our enemies, specifically Satan himself. As we skip down, it says in verse 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun, who is Jesus, will come to us from heaven. This rising sun It says, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. I'm going to suggest that this darkness is not a physical darkness, it's a spiritual darkness. 
and that over this world there is a spiritual darkness that people are groping around trying to find truth, trying to find their brand of peace, if you will, and it's not God's way, but it is more of a surrendering. It is the, the, the peace that is probably summed up in the word tolerance. For there to be peace, we don't want conflict. Actually, no conflict at all. We will just surrender our rights. We'll surrender our beliefs. We will not say what's right and wrong. We won't say what's truth and what's error. Because, see, those things are the substance of conflict. But what we just say, in order for there to be peace, there must be conflict. There must be truth confronting error. There must be God confronting Satan. But that's not how the world sees it. There, No, tolerance. We'll just let this go. We don't want conflict. The darkness has settled upon our land, our world. And we are clueless. Apart from Scripture, we're clueless as far as how do we gain peace? How do we gain peace in this nation? How do we gain peace in, in, in all of the political battlefronts? How do we gain peace in, in business where ethics are basically tossed out the window? How do we gain peace in our home with our neighbors? How do we gain peace even within our soul? Because the truth is that darkness has settled even in our own souls. Before I came to Christ, Scripture makes it clear, I was bound up, locked up, a prisoner in a kingdom of darkness. It goes on to say here, it says, shine on those living in darkness, that was me, in the shadow of death. Remember in Psalm 23, the shadow of death is not death itself. Your rod and your, st- your staff, they comfort me. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's not the, it's death, it's, it's those, that, those things that would threaten his life. And if this darkness is a spiritual darkness, I believe that the shadow of death, that which threatens us is a spiritual shadow of death as well. Satan's goal is to destroy. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's going to do that in your life. He's going to do that in your family. And the bottom line, church, is he is the enemy. Christ came to set us free from that enemy, to lift us out of the darkness, for light to shine on us, for us to see and understand the truth and not the world's brand of truth that will only lead us deeper into the darkness. He came to rescue us from the shadow of death and the fear of death and everything that would strangle life from me. And he was able, God, Jesus himself, was able to take me from that darkness, from that death, and breathe new life into me. And so the Spirit of God lives in me. He lives in you who believe in Jesus. And this is his very purpose, to rescue, to bring the salvation. That is what Zechariah is prophesying here. To guide your feet into the path of peace. See, this is God's version of peace. I need to crush the head of the serpent. I need to destroy the works of of the devil. I need to obliterate the darkness and the shadows. God says, even in my soul, for me to experience peace. He, here is my concern. <clears throat> I 
I think we can easily understand who our enemies are. Our enemies are those who oppose us, um, whether it's our fault or not. We're imperfect. We can sometimes say and do things that are rather silly, and, and we can offend, and we can create enemies. Now, our goal, of course, would, bring, would be to bring peace between that, but many times the enemy is us. We are the ones who bring the disunity and the strife in our home. And it is that in us that Christ needs to destroy. It's the flesh. That is the enemy. In the, the hymn, God rest you merry gentlemen, it says in the first stanza, remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. And then in the very end, it says to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. This is Christ's goal. Now we get a, an idea that this is his goal in the very titles that the angel, perhaps Gabriel, but the angel of the Lord that is announcing this birth of Jesus. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in this concept of Savior that I've begun to touch on, his purpose is to defeat the darkness in us and free us from that. As Christ, he is the anointed one that in Isaiah 61, where we get this concept of the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, it says that when he comes, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to proclaim good news. He comes to set the captives free, to deliver those who are in dungeons of darkness. You see, that was me. That was you. Is before you came to Christ, you were locked up in darkness. You didn't love God. You might have said you loved God, but you truly didn't. For me, I played the Christian game so well, so well. I would go to, I would go to my church. I would sing the hymns. I would well, do my best to stay awake during the sermon. I, I, I did these things. You looked at me, you would think, well, sure, Mike's a Christian. But the truth is, for me, I, I truly didn't have a desire to follow God. I did it because, I mean, that's what Christians are supposed to do, aren't they? But if you were to ask me, and my brother when I was 14 did ask me this, and he said, Mike, are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. No, Mike, what I'm asking you is, do you follow Jesus? Do you even want to follow Jesus? And at that moment, I realized I truly didn't. It was a thing to do for me. Just kind of check that one off my list. Okay. I acted like a Christian today. I didn't cuss. And God had to open my eyes to the truth. The love for God was not in my it was all my effort to conjure up this love. And I needed rescuing. I needed the darkness to be gone for the light to shine. I needed my eyes to be open. I needed my heart to be changed. And I can remember praying. And, and, and I said, you know what, God? I, I realized as a kid, I may have said, Jesus, you know, please come into my heart. Um, forgive me of my sins. And really not understanding the depth of what that was. But right now, I am surrendering my heart to you. You are my Savior. 
you are the bondage breaker and you are now my Lord and my master. I will follow you. Whatever you say, that's what I want to do right now. My flesh is saying no. And I need you to kill that in me. And Jesus came and, and he rescued me. And he began to impart to me a love for him that I realized as it grew, this is new for me. This hunger for him and his word. And, and I, I love to hang, hang, out, hang out with Christians. That was new for me. It wasn't one of those things anymore I had to check off the list to do. Is it good to go to church? Yeah. Wednesday nights. But then I also went Tuesday nights. Then I went Saturday nights. Then I went Friday nights. Then I got involved in so many different Bible studies. I was like busy almost every night of the week. And, and, and I, it was like I, I couldn't get enough of it. I loved God's people and I wanted what they had and their encouragement to me. And as a young man, I was insecure. I, I, was, I was so... There were fears, there were inadequacies in me, and I knew this, and I needed God to help me, but I didn't know, I didn't even know the degree to which they were a part of my life. I just knew that God needed to do something in me. He needed to grow something in me. There, and, and over the next several years, God began to send people that could graciously speak into my life, a, a youth pastor that, that spoke truth into my life, and I realized, wow. I did not see that before. And it humbled me. And I began to cry out to God, God, thank you for rescuing me, but there's a conflict still in my soul. And I need that darkness that's there. I need your light to shine. I need you to dispel the shadows that I talked about last week. Dispel those shadows in my life. Stuff lurks in the shadows. And God, they're, they're, they're seeking to devour me. And I do not want that. Come to my rescue. And God began to gradually set me free from these things. He still is today, by the way. But I'm so grateful for his patience in my life. I'm so grateful for that youth pastor that was willing to pull me aside and talk to me about my arrogance. I was clueless about it. There was a battle that took place for the salvation of my soul. That brought peace with God. And then there were regular battles that God had to win. Confrontations of, with my flesh that my flesh had to be crucified again and again for Christ to begin to be, begin to be formed in me. And I can remember it was probably about a year or two years uh, after I had given my heart to Christ I came to my mom and I said, Mom, because my mom really followed the Lord, loved the Lord, and I said, Mom, my brother Rob, who's 18 months older than me, is such a pain in the neck. I'm really trying hard to love him, Mom, but he fights me at every turn. Every, everything I say, he wants to argue with me. He belittles me. Uh, he, he invites me into uh, conflict, into verbal battles, and yes, still into fist fights. If you see my brother Rob, he's like three times my size, okay? And that was the same case back then. And my mom looked at me with a smile on her face, and she said, she said, but you know what, Mike? Maybe the problem. 
problem is not just all rock. What? Keep my, I'm the Christian here, right? Okay, and he's still, he's not, you know he's not following the Lord. You know he's the problem. Wait a second. And I'm paraphrasing here. But she said, maybe God wants to show you what you're doing in this fight. And I, I just thought, wow, my, my mom's lost faith in me. This is just a bit humiliating. And I said, okay, you know what, Mom, I'm going to pray about it. <laughs> Which means I'll think about it for two seconds and then put it back up on the shelf, right? Actually, the Lord reminded me over and over. He took it off the shelf and brought it to my attention. And I began to really pray about it. And God began to show me these insecurities. That I thought it was all him. But for me to experience that peace that we all want, especially in this season, there had to be a confrontation first in my own soul. God had gained the ground, okay? He had won the, the, the battle for my soul. But Satan was still trying so hard to produce this conflict in me that produced conflict between my brothers. And here's what I'm going to suggest to you, church. Do you really want to experience peace? I mean, do you really want to? Then you're going to need to allow God to fight for you. Because before there is peace, there must always be conflict. I, I am very grateful that God gave me a mom that as gracious as she was, was still willing to speak truth into my life. Without realizing at church, the gossip we speak and the slander will rob you of peace in your relationships. The pride that festers in our heart will rise up and will refuse to forgive or refuse to apologize. Selfishness begins to take ground in us, producing hurts and rejections in others. And these are the things that create enemies. Christ came to destroy the enemy. Jesus came to guide our feet into the path of peace. But to do this, we've got to let Christ destroy that which is evil in us. I love the song, Joy to the World, one of my favorite hymns. I'm just going to suggest to you as you look around longing for this joy, longing for this peace, isn't that what we read about here in the, the Annunciation of the Angel? Good news of great joy that will be for all people. Isn't this something that you long for in your own soul, this joy and this peace? There's only one way to do that. Forget about what the world tells you. God tells us. The problem is me. That this joy that I'm being robbed of, this peace that I'm failing to grasp is because he needs to do something in my heart. 
could you just stand with me right now? And could we have the worship team take the stage? We're going to sing the song Silent Night. We're going to be passing around candles because I have the helpers uh, pass around the candles. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know what? I see that two of the three are not here in this room. Oh, yes, we go. Here, there's another one. Uh, maybe some others can help. But as you get your candle, just wait, and we're going to light a candle <clears throat> at the end of the song, or, or while we're singing, rather, and then the stage is going to have their candles lit. They're going to, one's going to come down, and just we're going to begin to light candles, okay? And we're going to sing Silent Night. And even though, I just want you to know while we're singing this song, even though Luke 2 gives us a picture of silence, understand that there is a spiritual battle that took place for the souls of men and for the life of Christ himself. As we sing, maybe we could pray and ask God to deal with that in our own heart that he needs to in order for there to be peace with us. Amen. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the power of Jesus being our Savior, our Christ, our Lord, who came to set us free. Father, I thank you that, that it is through this pathway of conflict and even warfare that we are able to walk and have our feet guided on this path of peace. Jesus, thank you for what you accomplished for us. Thank you for how you changed us and how you are changing us. Father, continue to pour out your peace in our midst and win these battles. In Jesus' name.